joyful. Parenting from the pulpit. Good times. We are continuing down our look at Ephesians, and we are still here in chapter 2. This morning, looking at the riches of the kindness of God in Christ Jesus. And so, here again, these words from, from God to us this morning. This is God's Word. It is eternally true. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's ask God to bless the hearing of His Word this morning. Father, we pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts would please you this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of His Spirit. Amen. Riches are a very difficult thing to get our head around. They are, most of us, quite foreign to us. Um, The amount of money that a billionaire has is staggering, and there are multiple billionaires, um, and including many hundred billionaires. Hundred billion dollars. And so I did the math this week. If you spent $10 million a day, okay, so just imagine in your head if you could actually do this. Most of us can't even figure out how you would spend $10 million a day once. Now imagine doing it 365 days a year for 27 years, and you would have spent $100 billion dollars. 27 years of spending 10 million dollars a day. That's unfathomable riches. Unfathomable riches. Can't be counted. There are lots of things like this in the world that are unfathomable. Um, when I was young, I was very interested in space, very interested in space. Third grade wrote to NASA. I don't even know what I said. Something like, hey, my name's Joe. I like space. That's probably about it. And NASA, I'm sure, gets tons of these sorts of letters from kids who are interested in the unbelievable things that happen. And they sent me back all kinds of stuff, most of which I've lost through the years. 
Um, and I actually don't even know if I still have some of this stuff, but the uh, crews of several of the space shuttle missions, including the Challenger mission, um, which blew up not long before this, right? So this is about 92, 93 that I sent this in. And, uh, and so I knew, like, all this stuff about it then. I did a project when I was in third grade. I built a model of the space shuttle and the rocket boosters in Florida and Cape Canaveral. And this, I was really into it. I had a Time magazine from around that time that said we would be on Mars by 2015. That was the cover of Time. Mars 2015, NASA says. Well, we're a little bit off on that calculation. And years later, uh, long after I'd lost the luster of wanting to be an astronaut and long after I'd forgotten most of what I ever knew about space and all the things about it, um, when I was 19, I was in New York, I read Psalm 19, which says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And it was in the Adirondack Mountains. Now, some of you are familiar with the mountains there. Um, I had never been outside of Indiana, really. I'd been to Canada once for a senior trip, and Canada is basically like, you know, northern Michigan, so it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, there was nothing spectacular about where we went in Canada, that's what I'm trying to say. It was just a town. But the mountains were something very unique. I remember driving out. I drove out by myself, uh, and, you know, kind of, I don't know where it is, but you begin to see the mountains, uh, as you're coming across New York, because you're coming across the flatlands, like northern Ohio and, you know, western New York, and then you kind of just see the green hills in front of you. Huh? Good old Binghamton. Binghamton, apparently. That's the turning point. That's the place where it comes into view. And I remember being absolutely gobsmacked with the amount of stars in the sky. I grew up in the country in a small town, Lots of stars. Compared to Indianapolis where I was going to college, nothing like it. But there was nothing like the mountains and the stars. And then, about two years later, I was in Yellowstone, which is even higher up, right? I was at about 10,000 feet elevation every day. That was like where I lived was 10,000 feet elevation. No lights anywhere. I mean, you, the expanse of the heavens is staggering to behold. And then I remember the Hubble telescope. I was just telling my kids about this a few weeks ago. The Hubble telescope came online basically when I was growing up. It was put into space. They had the problems with the mirror. They had to go up, you know, fix it, and blah, 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 blah. Then they started taking pictures. And what they did a lot with the Hubble telescope, and what they're still doing with, uh, what's the new one called? I can't remember. James Webb, thank you. Uh, is they're, they're basically going, that area of the sky looks really dark, and I wonder what's there. And they would take pictures of what looked like just a black patch of sky. Nothing there. And then the images would come back, and it would just be filled to the brim. Uncountable stars and galaxies and planets and all kinds of stuff that we had never seen before. Had never no eye had ever seen it. Think about that for a minute. Abraham looking up at the stars 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, saw the same stars that we see, right? Now, it was a little bit different because he's on the other side of the world, but 
They are not different. Right? Very few things have changed in the night sky. The stars have moved, but they're still the same things. No one had ever seen the stuff we began seeing 30 years ago. No one, ever, other than God, who made it. The expanse of the heavens is incredible. It's just unfathomable. I remember years ago listening to a guy named Louis Giglio, who has said a lot of helpful things, some less than helpful things, but one of the really helpful things he has done is he has talked about the expanse of the universe. And he does it by doing comparison of stars. And so he'll start out with, like, you know, this is the size of, you know, the moon and the earth and our sun. And, and then he starts going on and on. And the size of the stars that we know of now, our sun is invisible next to them it's so small stars like Betelgeuse which I pronounce incorrectly because I think it's funny but it's like Betelgeuse our sun compared to Betelgeuse you cannot see Betelgeuse is such a huge star and there are stars even bigger than that our universe is expansive in ways that we cannot comprehend even with the newest, latest, greatest, we cannot see the end. We can't see it. We will never see it. It's an impossible task to know the ends of the created world. Okay? So, get this in your mind a little bit. The fact that even here, we don't know hardly anything. You can do the same thing with almost anything that's been created by God. The amount of information packed into things like atoms, which we used to think were pretty much the smallest thing, and then we discovered they were made of parts, and then when we discovered they were kind of made of parts, we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, right? We, we find out that things are not nearly as simple as they appear on the surface, but have infinite depth to them. This is the created world. Now, Try to comprehend this incomprehensible creation came out of the mind and word of God and is tiny, infinitesimally tiny in comparison to Him. Think about how immense God must be if everything that was created came from Him by His Word. His Word made that. His Word. And we are in awe of it. If you're not in awe of it, get in awe of it. It is an unbelievable thing that God has done. Unbelievable. And it's not just space. It's everything. The depths of the ocean. The peaks of the mountains, right? So, Petrie's just came back. We're at Glacier National Park. I've never been to Glacier. It was too far from Yellowstone, you know. Just couldn't make it. Uh, and Randy said that some of the waterfalls had these beautiful rocks, these colored rocks in them that looked like somebody just painted them. God did that. God did that far before any human ever went to that waterfall to look at those rocks. He just did that. 
And he does it all over the place, right? I talked in in my prayer about um, seeing the buds come up from the ground. There's these amazing videos you can watch now online of seeds in the ground sprouting. And you just see them, right? A little seed. And this little thing pokes out. And then it begins to kind of like... And then it... Out of the... And it just... And you can see this amazing time lapse of what happens to a seed in the dirt. Or if you watch videos, have you ever seen the fields, the sunflower seed fields out west? And how there's just these massive sunflower fields. You know, hundreds of acres of sunflowers. And sunflowers turn... They follow the sun. It's unbelievable to watch it. You can watch it in real time. Like you can just sit and watch a field of sunflowers turn all day long. Just, that's what they do. Great big eight foot tall monstrous flowers. And we eat the seeds. I mean, just anything you want to pick, anything out of God's creation, blow your mind. Just unbelievable creative power. By grace you have been saved and and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Have you ever considered the idea, the fact, the reality that is unbelievably interesting as space is, as deep as the ocean is and as wild as the creatures are, as unbelievable as a seed that's this big having the information to grow into a tree that towers over this building, those are uninteresting compared to us as Christians. They're not even worth looking at compared to to the immeasurable riches of God's grace in us. Think about that for just a minute. We can be enthralled with almost anything that God has ever done. And so often we forget that this is actually the most unbelievable thing that has ever been done, ever. And that is the making of a new people for God. The raising up people from the dead. Now, what does creation do for us? What is it meant to do? It's meant to make us ponder the vastness and the glory of God. I quoted Psalm 19 earlier. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. They are a monument to God's glory, His power, His might, His creative energy. The Spirit puts it this way in Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It is a declaration. He made it for a reason. We make things for reasons. Well, most of us do. Um, If you 
have ever dealt with children who make things constantly, you know that they always have a reason why they made something. Now, it might be quite forgettable why they made it, but they always know why they made it this way and not that way, why they did this and not that, why they made this person and not that person. They know why they did it. And every good author, movie maker, musician, whoever who's making something for us knows why they're doing it. And it's for many reasons, but one of the reasons is so that they can receive some credit back for it. They want some credit for what they've made, right? And it doesn't have to be self-seeking, self-aggrandizing credit, but it's there so that they will get something from it so they can continue maybe on in their work. This is the truth of everything that we ever do as people. We do things for many reasons, and one of them is a self-glorifying feature. And that's not bad. We want to think of it as always bad. Being a proud, self-serving person is bad, but wanting credit for something you have done is not bad. It's not bad. You don't have to be greedy for it, but it's not bad to want to be acknowledged for something you've done. God has created the entirety of everything for that very purpose. And he's done it to show forth his power and his might and his godhood. He wants people to know who he is. We do this with lots of different things. One of the ways we do this is by building monuments. I wanted to get downtown. I've never looked at the courthouse monuments here. Um, I don't know what they say on them, but I've been to lots of monuments in my day, right? Uh, I remember pretty vividly the first time I really began to comprehend the reason for monuments. I went out with my dad. I was about 12 years old. There was a, um, oh, what's it called? Just blanked. I didn't think I could ever forget the name of this. Promise Keepers in Washington, D.C., my dad and I went with my cousins from North Judson on a big bus, drove out there all night, went to this big men's conference called Promise Keepers on Monument Square. I mean, just like right there's the Washington Monument, and you're facing the, across the reflection pool. And, and then we had some free time, and my dad went, where would my dad go? My dad's 71 now. Where did he go? Vietnam, that's right. My dad went to the Vietnam Monument. I was 12, guys. Completely unaware of really anything about my parents. You know, you're aware, you kind of know, but you have no idea about your own parents at 12 years old. You don't know what they've seen, what they went through, what it was like to graduate high school in 1969 and... All your friends are disappearing out into the jungles and never coming home. I don't know what that's like. I still don't know what that's like. My dad goes to this monument. Anybody ever been there? Vietnam. Great big black, I don't know what it's made of. Some sort of marble or something, you know, granite. Just covered in names. Just covered in names. And so my dad goes. I don't even know. Right now, I didn't call him and ask him, but he would know. 
He just went looking for names. Looking for names. Because he knew they were there. He knew they were there. They'd been written for a reason. To say, these men, these women, died for us. Right? And lots of memorials are like that. Lots of them have names on them. And they are meant to be permanent. Now, nothing's permanent in this world, but things like monuments are meant to just last and last and last and last. If, for whatever reason, we could look into the future, we would hope that things like the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. still stands hundreds and hundreds of years from now. Even if the United States doesn't exist, we would hope that the memorial still stands. Because the memorial gives witness to something bigger than just the country. It gives witness to the men and women who actually died. Witness to what God has done or other things that we would make memorials for that we would hope would last. When the people came out of the desert and into the promised land, they crossed the River Jordan. We forget that the crossing of the River Jordan also included this unbelievable miracle called the parting of the Jordan, where God caused the River Jordan to stop flowing, just like he had caused the Red Sea to part. Same miracle 40 years later. Going in, coming out. And at the end, Joshua's leading the people, crossing the River Jordan, heading into the Promised Land, going to get the victory, Hundreds of thousands of men have died over the course of 40 years. An entire generation, everyone over the age of 20, including Moses himself, died in the wilderness. The only two men who were alive were Joshua and Caleb. That's it. Everyone else they had grown up with died in the wilderness. Going through, and God says to them, get somebody from every tribe, go get a rock, boulder, bring it here. We're going to make a monument right here. But God has brought you across the Jordan. So that, years later, when your sons and grandsons ask, why is that pile of rocks there? You can give witness to God bringing you across the Jordan into the promised land, despite everything else that had happened. It was there for a reason. It was supposed to last for a long, long, long time. I don't know. I didn't look up. It's probably still there. There's probably still the 12 stones. I'm sure it's been... If it hasn't been discovered in uh, archaeology, it will be. Monuments. The created world is a monument to the majesty of God. We, as Christians, are much, much more glorious than that. We are more powerful than the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. 
We are more powerful than the World War II Memorial and the World War I Memorial and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and whoever else you want to put up there with the greatest memorials that we have built in our country. Whatever you want to say pales in comparison. Pales in comparison. We pale the, the, the 12 stones put up by the Israelites when they crossed into the Promised Land pale in comparison to who we are as the monument of God. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. We are the greatest monument ever built. And we are built by the hand of God through Christ Jesus. We make space look tiny. We make the universe look like a dot in a sea of water. We are the point, the pinnacle, the actual thing that will display for all time and to everyone and everything God's great grace. That's the point. A few things from that then. This is such a surpassing greatness that we need help to behold it. It can't be comprehended, earthly speaking, by us. This is a spiritual reality that must be comprehended spiritually. It's a gift. To even know the greatness of the gift is a gift. So we need to seek it. We need to seek out the help of God to know the greatness of the immeasurable wealth He has poured out on us in Christ Jesus for the display of His glory for all eternity. We need help to know it. Paul says very similar things several different times. Um, he remembers the Ephesians in the prayers, in his prayers, so that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are the great monuments that we are. We give witness to the immeasurable greatness of grace and the great power that raised us from the dead. The second thing that's very important and that Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, spends great pains at later in the book is the importance of knowing our importance so that we will not neglect the church, his bride, together. We are one communion of saints. The often time-old problem is we don't understand the greatness of the people in the pews as the bride of Christ, and so we neglect them. We neglect them. We neglect them two ways. I think, and probably more than this, but two main ways. One, we just don't come. We don't care what happens. We're not around. The fellowship of the body doesn't mean anything to us. Um, we have to overcome that. We have to overcome that. We have to be willing to have the fellowship at the cost of everything because this is the most worthy thing that has ever been done on the face of the planet. Related to that is the second problem, which is usually the reason we give for why we don't like the fellowship of the saints, which is 
we're all a bunch of people who sin against each other. And that guy annoys me. And that woman said this thing. And boy, those kids are noisy. Whatever it is, whoever it is, you have a problem with someone, you're like, I don't really want to hang out. I'm not gonna. Here is the problem with that. We are the most precious thing in the entirety of the world. The church. We are dirty because we're sinners. So what should be done to the dirty, precious thing? What do we do to precious things that get dirty in the world? We clean them. We clean them. We don't think, oh, you know, I've got this family silver and it's tarnished beyond belief and you can't use it, and it's completely worthless, and it's just there, all gross and green and brown. Let's throw it away. Just don't need that anymore. What do you do with a family silver that's gotten tarnished? You clean it, right? Now, you might not clean it every day, but you definitely clean that stuff because you know the value of it. Same thing with all of our monuments, right? They're kept pristine and clean. We want them to be known. And every monument gets dirty. Every monument gets dirty. We are the greatest monument the history has ever known. And we will be dirty with sin, sadness. And so we have a choice as a church. Will we be washed and purified through the Word, which is what God says to us in Ephesians chapter 5. And He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice it doesn't say, we have been created a perfect spotless bride that needs no washing. That our monument is perfect as is. But no, He created us as His monument to be perfected, to be sanctified, to be washed. That if we ever get to the point where we don't like to be at the church because it's so problematic, we have actually said that we don't believe what God has said about His own bride. Of course it's problematic. Of course it's full of sinners. Of course it needs washing. Of course there is tension and, and grossness. We wash. We wash. We wash. We wash. We wash. We wash until it shines. And that day when it shines is when He comes back and He makes all things perfect. And until that day, every week, every week we wash. Every week we do this. We are the most important thing on the planet, in the universe, in the created world. We, the church, are the most important thing. It doesn't matter if next week our lawmakers fail to abolish abortion. 
It does not matter if tomorrow Russia decides to launch a nuke against us. It does not matter at all. Because we are a monument that will always stand. We are unshakable. We are unbreakable. We are for the totality of eternity, the greatest thing in the world aside from God Himself. And our whole purpose, our whole purpose is to point back to Him. And so that is our final thing. We, our confession this morning, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Monuments are not supposed to just be a glorious thing in and of themselves. They are glorious. Right? Good monuments make you go, wow. Wow. But good monuments don't stop at the wow factor. They're supposed to point you to something beyond the, the thing itself. Right? The Vietnam Memorial, War Memorial is not just to go, that is an amazing amount of precision stone cut, mounted, engraved, beautiful. You'd miss the point if that's all you did. The point is beyond the monument. We, although unbelievably beautiful, in need of washing, we're not the point. We are the most precious thing in the created world. But we are just that in the created world. And there is one who made us. And that's where the monument points. That is what our job is. We are supposed to reflect the goodness of God in Christ Jesus to the world. And the more we wash, the more we love, the better the reflection is. We want people to be wowed at the church. And then we want people to be wowed by the God who made it. And that is what it means to be the church. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And we will be this monument not just now, forever, without end, for all eternity, we will be the pinnacle monument of all of God's works. There will never be anything in comparison to us in all that God has made. We are the monument to God's grace, love, mercy, kindness, justice, wrath, everything. We are it. So let's be aware of it. Let's reflect on it. Let's think about it. Let's believe it. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll sing together our final song. Stand as I pray.